The following message is from the Church at Greer Station. For more information, visit tcgreerstation.com. Being a part of the church is one of the great joys of life and of my life personally. I love being able to be a part of a church, and I love getting to do the things that we get to do, and I love this career. I love getting to do this, to teach the Bible, and to, to sit with people over coffee, and to, to wrestle through life changes, and, and, and to visit the sick, and to visit those who are rejoicing. I, I love this, and I pray by God's grace that there's 60 more years of this out in front of me, here at TCGS, soon to be Ridgewood. But for all of the good things, and, and our passage has some of those good things in it today, there's also tragedies. There's also really terrible things that happen within the walls of the church. The best and the worst of church life is almost embodied for us by two characters in our passage today. And I think what we're kind of invited to see is these two characters and the kind of way they represent being the church. And, and, and Luke is appealing to us as, as readers of his story of the book of Acts to be like one of these characters and to reject the model of another. Let's begin reading again in Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Now, this is one of those scriptures that you read in Acts, and you're like, like man, I, I, want, I want to I go to there, right? I want to I be there. I want to I experience that. I want to be a part of a, a, a community that's like that, What's especially, I think, Compelling about what we're, what we're seeing here at the end of Acts chapter 4 is knowing what happened just before that. The opposition that they're beginning to face and the opposition that's beginning to mount to the early days of the, the Christian church. And yet we're told that the Spirit gives them great grace such that they're selling the stuff that they own to meet the needs of the brothers and sisters that also make up the church. It's an amazing picture. This voluntary selling and sharing. It's, it's a reiteration of, of a lot of what we saw in chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, where we're, we see that they, they're sharing their life together, they're sharing fellowship, they're sharing possessions, and, and that great awe settles on the church. And we said then that the Bible envisions a kind of rich and beautiful community, in the truest sense of the word community. Our passage today in Acts recounts the early life of the church, where we get a glimpse into that amazing community built on a common life together, sharing one heart and one soul, it says. Sharing one heart, be, being in lockstep with one another in fellowship, such that they were even sharing their belongings. And it says that there was not a needy person among them. There wasn't a needy person in the midst of the early church because they were sacrificially handing their own possessions over to serve the needs of one another. It's amazing. We're told also that the apostles are in power giving testimony to the resurrection of Jesus and that great grace is upon them. It's a beautiful scene, and I, I love these little summaries that were given throughout Acts. But in verse 36, there's an exemplar. There's one guy who's just especially crushing it. Verse 36. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, 
a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, something Luke likes to do is to tease these characters in like early episodes because they're going to appear later on in episode 9 as a really important character, right? And he, he does this here with Barnabas. We're told his name's Joseph, but the apostles, I guess it's kind of a flex. They name him, they call him Barnabas. It's like, you're not Joseph anymore, you're Barnabas. But it's cool because Barnabas kind of lives in accordance with the name that he's been given. It's probably why they gave him the name because they see how exemplary he is of these kind of characteristics, how exemplary he is of this beautiful life together in verses 32 through 34. Barnabas being given this name change is a sign of respect. It's, it's the, they see something special about this guy. And then when he re- reappears in later chapters, like in chapter 9, verse 26, it's when Barnabas is going to bat for Paul. Paul has been converted. Paul has a very horrible reputation. But Barnabas says, this guy is legit. Like he vouches for Paul when people were very understandably questioning whether or not Paul had legitimately been converted. And Barnabas is like, I'm, I'm going to bat for Paul. He does the same thing for John Mark in chapter 15, verses 36 to 39. He goes to bat for John Mark. Even when Paul had beef with John Mark, Barnabas goes to bat for him. And then in chapter 11, verses 20 through 24, we're told that Barnabas is a good man who is full of the Holy Spirit and faith. Barnabas is a good man who is full of the Holy Spirit and faith. Barnabas is a good man. Like, how many people in the Bible are described with, like, such glowing language? Barnabas is just a an outstanding dude. He's like a walking paraclete. It's like we see the the way that the Spirit is kind of given to help his church. Barnabas is just totally living that out in accordance with the Spirit, empowered by the Spirit, exemplary of this beautiful life together. He sells a field. He brings the money to the apostles so that they can use it to meet the needs of the rest of those in the fellowship. Then watch this. Acts chapter 5, verse 1. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. Like Barnabas, he's part of the Christian community. He takes it upon himself to sell this property as well, verse 2. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. All right, so like Barnabas, Ananias sells his property. Unlike Barnabas, Ananias keeps a portion of what he made from selling the property. And I think what we're intended to, that Luke is intending for us to see is that Barnabas is acting almost like a, like a foil to the character of, uh, or, or uh, uh, Ananias is acting like a, a foil to the character of Barnabas. He and his wife both. Verse 3. Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. Now remember, this was absolutely not mandatory. Peter says as much. He says, Ananias, you did not have to sell the property, one. But not only that, after selling the property, you didn't even have to give the full proceeds of that property if, if you didn't want to. But for whatever reason, born from some sort of need to project an image, born from greed, whatever it was, Ananias decides to sell his property. And in a presumably like a, a kind of grandstanding, a, a pretending to be really generous, he offers a partial sacrifice to the apostles and to the church. 
He sells his property, and instead of giving the, all, all of the, 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 the proceeds from the property, which he, it's implied that he, he sort of is intending to do, he keeps back some of the proceeds for himself. And it's amazing to me that this need to, how could we define it, to, to play act, to kind of pretend to be morally superior, to, to do this kind of generous grandstanding kind of thing has been around always. It's always been a part of the church. This desire to perform. If you think about in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus warns against this very thing in the Sermon of the Mount, this kind of bad pretending, right, where you have Jesus specifically condemns the long prayers and the very loud donations that the Pharisees are making. You just kind of picture them like flicking the coins into the coffer so it makes a really loud noise so everyone hears how generous they're being. That very same thing happens even in the earliest Christians. The earliest stories we have of the church includes stories of people grandstanding, pretending to be more moral, more spiritual, more gracious, more generous than they actually are. Ananias didn't have to sell his property. And he didn't have to, he didn't have to donate. He could have donated 50% of it so long as it was consistent with what he said he was going to do. But instead, he sold his property he made a big deal about um, giving the proceeds to help the needs of the church, kept back a little bit for himself. And Peter says, with incredibly strong language, that you have not lied to man, but have lied to God. One commentator said that this deceit, this kind of hypocrisy that, that Ananias is displaying here, cuts at the very root of the unity that's displayed above in chapter 4, verses 32 through 37. You have the full number being of one heart and of one soul, but there's this greedy, this kind of selfish act and this desire to be seen as more generous than he actually was. It was, a, it was a kind of fracturing of the oneness that the church possessed, a fracturing of that oneness of heart and soul that is the work of the enemy. He says that Satan has filled your heart. That's what happens, verse 5. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last and great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. What takes place after this? We're told that Ananias drops dead. He falls to Peter's feet and breathes his last. Now, this can be a really challenging passage for us because, I mean, maybe you've heard sort of this sentiment before. It's like, if only we could get back to the way that the early church was, if only we could be like the early church. And then we're also very graciously given passages like this that remind us, like, Maybe being a part of the early church wasn't always the most rosy, right? But it's helpful that we see that there have been these kind of issues since the earliest days. Fallen people doing harm to God's church and the enemy actively opposing the work of the church since day one from inside. It's also worth noting that we have the, the threats kind of established in chapter four, both external to the church and internal to the church. That there are those who are outside of the church who, ex who, who oppose the work of Christ, but the serpent was the craftiest beast of the field, and he, he knew how to slither in and get within the parameters of the garden as well. And he does the same thing even in the church by compromising people who are a part of the church to corrupt it from the inside. This passage is very sobering for us because sometimes we can have incomplete notions of Jesus as very gracious and merciful, and of course that's very true. But we also see Jesus who is unquestionably the same God who is the God of these miracles of judgment that we see in the Old Testament. 
Jesus strikes Ananias down in a way that's actually strikingly similar to the story of Achan. You familiar with the story of Achan? Some have called this kind of thing a miracle of judgment. It's like, uh, you, you know, in these chapters, we're told often that there's signs and wonders that are being done by the apostles. These amazing, you know, healings and casting out demons and things. But then we have these kind of miraculous moments of judgment in the scriptures like this. That's almost like the photo negative of those signs of wonders. In Joshua chapter 7, one such miracle of judgment, Achan withholds what he was supposed to. He, they, were to they were to conquer the territory and they weren't to withhold any for themselves. And Achan withholds some of what they conquered. And the result is that he is struck down in judgment. And almost certainly the story of Ananias is intended to recall the story of Achan. Jesus is the same God in Joshua chapter 7 as he is in Acts, and he judges the same kind of disobedience amongst his people here. We're told that Ananias has a wife. What of his wife, Sapphira, verse 7? After an, excuse me, after an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me, whether you sold the land for so much? So he's given her an opportunity to, to do different, to do better than Ananias. But she says, yes, we did indeed sell it for such and such amount. Verse 9. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. And immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last when the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and all who heard of these things. We're told that Sapphira follows suit, probably conspired. You can imagine Ananias and Sapphira scripting it. It's like, okay, we got, we got, this is when we sold it. This is the amount that we sold it for. This is what we're going to tell everybody we sold it for, right? You can imagine them conspiring together. Peter confronts her. Peter suspects that she's going to lie too, gives her an opportunity to out herself. And what does she do? She lies. And what happens? Well, like her, her husband, the Lord judges her as well. She's dead. In fact, Peter speaks strongly to her as well and says, you have tested the Spirit together. I think there's one major lesson for us that we could take away. There's, there's obviously so many different things that we could always say about any given passage. But I think there's one really important lesson in this passage for us, and it's this. Jesus is passionate about the purity of his church. Jesus is passionate about the purity of his church. At the end of Acts chapter 4, we have a picture of what Jesus wants to do in us. He wants us to be of one heart and of one soul. He wants us to be moved by a kind of love of God and love of neighbor that loosens our grip on the material world, that lives sacrificially with and alongside one another. But then we're also given a very realistic picture of just what happens when sin enters the camp. And we're, 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 I think what we're clued into here is Jesus' love for his church that doesn't permit evil to take foot in his church. That, that Jesus is, is passionate about the purity of his church and that Jesus is committed to addressing sin in his church. One thing I think that is worth exploring is asking whether or not the story of Ananias and Sapphira is intended to be normative. Like, is, is it intended for us to read this passage and conclude that any time anybody does something similar to this act, is, it, is the result going to be that we can expect the Lord to strike them down dead? I've been around church for a long time, 
and maybe you have a different experience, but I have not yet seen the Lord strike anyone dead during the offering time or anything similar, right? I think it's helpful to think about this kind of miracle of judgment along the same lines we have taught on the other miracles present. Like we've said before, these miracles, though not normative, they are informative. They teach us about God's heart. And yet, God does what God wants to do. So like we've said before, like it's not necessarily normative that uh, uh, demons are going to be cast out. It's not necessarily normative that uh, healings are going to be taking place in our midst and in the life of the church. But if God wants to do that, it is totally within God's prerogative to do that. And I think similarly, if God wants to grant a kind of miraculous, unexplained death and judgment, he can it, it might not be the normative thing. It's probably not going to happen, you know, week to week. One of us is going to bite the dust. Yeah. Lord, you know, that, that's probably not going to happen. But I think the scripture shows us that if God wants to do that, God can do that. Because Jesus is passionate about the purity of his church. Jesus is passionate about pr- protecting his church, his beloved, blood-bought bride from sin. Jesus is passionate about uprooting sin and the life of the church. Elsewhere in the scriptures, we read about disunity. It's condemned. The the, the act of sowing division is condemned. Hypocrisy, pretense, and moral grandstanding like Ananias. Abuse and exploitation of God's church and everything in between. Jesus is passionate about addressing those things. In recent weeks, I'm, I'm sure you've heard of the tragic reality of the abuse that's taken place within Southern Baptist churches. This passage speaks to that. It's that Jesus cares and that Jesus will address those who abuse, manipulate, and exploit his church. Jesus himself tells us in Matthew 18, verses 5 and 6, he says, Woe to those who cause one of the children to sin. Better that a millstone is thrown around his neck and tossed into the sea. Is not the most loving thing Jesus could do for his church is to be unrelenting towards sin? Is it not loving to be opposed to the thing that would destroy the thing that he loves so dearly? Is it not loving to your body to treat cancer with the most violence we can muster? Jesus is passionate about the purity of his church, and he will personally deal with any and all who deceive, manipulate, exploit, or abuse pastor, lay leader, problematic member, or otherwise. Jesus will judge those who abuse his church. He will guard against the corrosive power of sin. Maybe not now, but he will with an ironclad certainty then at the end of days. Jesus is passionate about the purity of his church and he loves his church. He bought his church with his own blood and he will care for her. Jesus' passion for his church I think is also a reason why he gives us church discipline. Something Jesus gives to his church, and if if you're a member with us, we have talked about this, and and we want this to be a a regular part of who we are as as a church body. Jesus has given us tools to preserve the church's purity in the form of church discipline. Accountability structures, a mechanism for confronting sin, and also a mechanism for removing people from the community whose repentance is poisonous to the, whose unrepentance, rather, is poisonous to the body, and whose lives are consistently at odds with the fruit of the Spirit. We are instructed and given the responsibility to care for one another in such a way that we exhort one another towards holiness and invite this family to correct us. 
There's two key scriptures we'll look at briefly. One from Jesus, it's kind of the foundational teaching here, and then one from Paul, which is sort of a test case for us. Look at Matthew 18, it'll be on the screen. Matthew 18, verse 15, this is Jesus speaking. He says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to him, excuse me, if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Now, what's important to point out about this passage is it comes immediately after the story of the the shepherd leaving the 99 to care for the one. So in Jesus' mind, this is a way to leave the 99 and pursue and care for the one. When a brother or a sister is living in sin, to go confront that brother and sister. Not for the sake of dropping the hammer, but to see them restored, to invite them back. To encourage them to abandon their impurity and embrace the purity of the life of Christ. Verse 16. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. Jesus says, like, if someone is so resistant to counsel and calls and beckonings to repent and to be restored to the body, ultimately, we're to dismiss them and to treat them as an outsider for their good. It's a, it's a splash of cold water to the face that hopefully they would, they would see their need to be restored. And... For the church is good. For the church is good to remove them from the fellowship so that they don't damage the body. Verse 18. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them and my Father, by my Father in heaven. For where there are two or three gathered in my name, there I am among them. What Jesus is actually granting here is the the authority of the church to to affirm or deny based on the evidence of a person's life whether or not they belong to Christ. This is probably the best reading of what it means to be given the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Now in 1 Corinthians 5, we're given a test case. This too will be on the screen. This is Paul the Apostle writing to the early church in Corinth. Again, it's like, you want to be like the early church? Let's look at the early church. Verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. He says that this man's sin is so egregious, it's so public, it's so unrepentant. Remove him from the fellowship immediately, Paul says. Verse 3, For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. You can see the same logic is at play. Remove him from the fellowship. And the way Paul says it here is hand him over to Satan. Hand him over. The idea is that he would be shocked into repentance that he would be shocked at, that he would, he would see he's being handed over to his sin and that would wake him up from his rebellion, that he would, he would be restored back with the fellowship. Verse 6, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are leavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. 
Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Paul says like, like leaven and bread, it permeates and affects the whole. Sin has a corrosive effect on the rest of the body. Remove him. Verse 9. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. He says, for those who claim the name of Jesus yet live unrepentant lives of immorality, greed, and the like, break fellowship with them. He says, non-Christians are going to act like non-Christians, but we cannot tolerate people who bear the name of brother, bear the name of Christian, living in sin. Must remove them, Paul says. Now, this pushes back against every one of my sensibilities. It pushes back, I'm sure, against every one of your sensibilities as well, because we feel like, like we want to be incredibly welcoming and we want to be inviting. We want, we, we want the invitation to be far and wide and we want to see people come in, right? What is Paul saying? That we're to remove people from our fellowship? Like, isn't the whole thing to be, to be coming together and to be coming together in Christ? And that's exactly the point is that we're calling people to leave their sin, to leave their rebellion, and to come be with Christ, to abandon their impurity and enjoy the purity of fellowship with Jesus. One thing that I can't even articulate is how this dynamic that Paul mentions here, just the, the, the reality that there is no such thing as even private sin. Sin just has a noxious and kind of cancerous power on the body. I can't explain it. I don't, I don't know how it works sociologically, but there's some phenomenon that sin, if it persists in the body, will ruin the body. It's like a compromised immune system. It's like a leavening, Paul says. And of course, Paul's not calling for perfection. He's not calling for us to, to, to oust or boot out anyone who stumbles or makes a mistake. Rather, Paul is calling for, for us to be people who live lives of constant repentance, but who are absolutely unwilling to allow any of our brothers and sisters to persist in ruinous, unrepentant sin that will ruin them and ruin the body. Verse 12. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. And then quoting the Old Testament, purge the evil person from among you. Jesus is passionate about the purity of his church. And Jesus calls us to be passionate about the purity of his church. And he equips us to preserve the purity of his church through church discipline. And in Acts chapter 5, 11, it says that there's a certain sobriety that's settled on the people. Like the early church upon whom a great fear settles, a great fear should settle on us as well as we consider these things. May it be true of us that we fear the judgment of the Lord Jesus for ourselves and for those who seek to ruin the church through sin. So this passage holds out for us two examples, Barnabas and Ananias. Choose your character wisely. Let's allow the scripture to invite us to be like Barnabas, to be people who embody the best of the church, who are, who are generous, who are pure-hearted, who are devoted, who are encouraging, who are a blessing to this community who goes to bat for others. He's a man full of the Spirit, a good man, and I love that this is what it looks like to be brimming over with the Spirit, 
to be a man like Barnabas, to be a woman like Barnabas, a good man, a good woman, generous. We can be like Barnabas or Ananias, greedy, selfish, deceitful, playing the game, manipulating, performing a kind of righteousness, and being ultimately a curse on the community and a curse that the Lord Jesus will bring to judgment. That's the invitation for us today. Who are we? Who, who am I going to be in the life of the church at Greer Station? In light of the scripture, how do you need to repent tonight? How do you need to confess? What does the knowledge of the poisonous effects of sin in the camp do to challenge you? And it's interesting talking about boldness and, and the previous two Sundays, the, the importance of boldness in the life of the early church. You know, again, I can't quite put my finger on why this is the case, but our boldness is totally compromised by private hidden sin. I don't know what it is. I don't know how that works. But I have found in my own life and seen in the lives of others, I am, if my conscience is violated, I am way less willing to be bold. I don't know, I don't know what the connection is. I don't know how that works. But boldness and, and sin sort of correspond with one another. And so if we, if we want the boldness that the, the early church prays for, it corresponds with confessing and repenting. It's like elsewhere Paul talks about the church being pillars of truth. And imagine like a, like a four by four that's got some, some rot at the bottom. And it's like it's, its integrity is compromised and it can't be that pillar. In the same way, sin has that sort of corrosive effect on us. So how do we confess? How do we repent in light of this passage? Do we have a f- healthy fear of God's judgment on sin? And, and do we have Jesus' passion for the church that Jesus has? Do we love the church with the same kind of white hot intensity that Jesus loves the church? Jesus is passionate about the purity of his church. Jesus bleeds for his bride. He will care for her. He will bring judgment on those who don't. And by God's grace, may we be a church upon whom a great fear settles. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come to you acknowledging our imperfection and our unworthiness. And we come first acknowledging that we are made righteous by the blood you shed for us on the cross. We also acknowledge that your desire for us is to, see, is, is, is to work out the fruits of your spirit and to see us growing in righteousness. And because of our fallen, unbelieving hearts, we resist. And Lord Jesus, I pray that you would by your spirit, identify those places where we're resisting what you want to do within us for our sake and for the sake of this body. Would we be people of confession and and people of repentance, people whose lives are marked by kind of continuous repentance and a a receptivity to to being challenged by the scripture and, and, and being confronted by our brothers and sisters. And we pray, Lord Jesus, that you would give us a, a seriousness as a body about living righteously, about choosing to, to live like Barnabas and, and not Ananias and Sapphira. And we pray that your love for the church would fuel our own love for the church and that our love for the church would be what compels us to put sin to death, to put to death the, 
those earthly parts of our flesh. Lord Jesus, we love you. We pray that you would care for this church and continue to grow us deep and wide. And may we, above all things, would we be faithful in making you known, Lord Jesus.